The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. You'll be happy that you listen to this episode before you plant your first plant. It begins with setting garden goals. Jeff Rugg is an educator at heart, and for over 33 years, he has written a weekly nationally syndicated newspaper column, The Greener View. He taught the University of Illinois Master Gardener and Master Naturalist programs. He now teaches via the internet through his YouTube channel, Greener View, with over 300 videos and more coming. Many of the videos match the playlist of the chapters of his Greener View gardening book. The book is available at greenerview.com. There is a $30 discount on the softcover edition when using the promo code podcast. This is episode 130, Cultivating the Perfect Garden with Effective Goal Planning, with Jeff Rugg. Jeff, how would you go about setting goals for a new garden? It's interesting because I would say most people think of their landscape in the smaller pieces, when in reality, it's a much larger part of a whole. We, as people, look at property lines, but nothing else does. The weather doesn't look at our property as a separate little place. The birds don't. The frogs don't. Nothing else does. As part of an ecosystem, we have to kind of look at all the different influences that are coming into our yard. When it rains, where does the water go? How does it get across the property? There's all these different aspects that are out there that are much bigger than just one little part of our garden. We have a front part of the garden where we're trying to make the house more attractive and focus attention to the front door. We have a backyard that we're going to use for all kinds of purposes. A lot of times, side yards in the United States are north, south, or east, west. And so we have utility areas on one side where there's a gas line and electric coming in, the water meter, whatever is on one side, sunshine on one side and shade on the other side because of the north, south, east, west. There's just a lot of areas of the whole property that we can call a garden. I have a lot of times people that want to grow one thing or they're interested in one specific thing. They want to have a patio and they're not concerned about the rest of the yard or they want to have a vegetable garden and they're not concerned about the rest of the yard or they're only concerned about the front. A lot of times we work just with what they're looking for, but we have to kind of take into account all those other things that are going to influence it. What are your thoughts on setting up a budget for your project? Budgets for people that don't know anything about plants can be really difficult. If you're a plant parent and you have a lot of plants in your house and now you're looking towards doing something outside, you have a general idea of what the cost of the plants are. Probably not necessarily what the cost of the mulch or paved stone patio or a deck are going to be. For me, I had to redo a bathroom recently and I had no idea how much a bathroom would cost. Go to the local hardware store and I'd start looking at sinks and bathtubs and just start getting pricing ideas in my mind. The plastic sink is going to cost a lot less than the granite sink. That part I knew, but I had no idea what the overall pricing would be. So if you're 
a plant person, it's a little bit easier. If you're a novice and you have no idea what plants are, plants that are smaller are going to cost less. You're going to spend time or money when you're putting in a landscape. You can put in a, a small tree, five foot tall, and diameter of a broomstick for a lot less than you can put in something that's going to require a crane to put in. The small one is going to take years to grow big enough that you can hang a swing on it. You're going to spend time or money. You just have to start doing some research, talking to nurseries, going to the neighbors who've just had a landscape installed, find some friends who are into plants and start asking them what the prices they've been paying. A big driver that is whether you're doing it yourself or you're hiring the different phases out. If you're doing it yourself, you don't have to worry about the installation price, but a lot of times there's a little bit of a maintenance thing that maybe comes with the installation or there's a guarantee that comes with the installation if the company installs it rather than you installing it. There's more to it than just the price of Harrison of Mead putting it in versus the landscaper putting it in. A lot of times it's actually less expensive if you have the landscaper put it in because they're going to do it right and you're not going to have to do this three or four times. You always have the option of phasing in your garden project. I find that most people's dreams are a lot larger than their pocketbooks. Right. The whole thing can be phased in. You want to pick what's most important. A lot of times if it's a brand new home, the homeowners association or the village or whatever you're in will require that the front landscaping be done before you can start doing other things in the backyard. You want to get that part installed. After that, where are the uses going to be? Do you need to have a patio or do you need to have a play area of the grass for the kids? What are the uses they're going to be? A lot of times it's more important to put in trees first, especially if it's going to be a large tree where you're going to have a tractor or something else driving it around to the back and ruining all the grass that you installed first. Put in the big trees, spend a little bit of money on those up front and get them growing so that phase is done then you can start putting in the less expensive phases and the ones that don't require the equipment later. How does climate relate to a garden? And I'm talking micros and uh, macro climates. Can you explain how all that works? Sure. The climate is basically long-term weather. We look at the climate on 30-year scales where after 30 years, we drop the previous 10 and add on the next 10. When climatologists is talking about the climate, they're looking at the last 30 years. We a lot of times have weather information for over 100 years. They need to have that comparison factor because we don't have the 100-year data for a lot of places. So they're looking at the 30 years. It's based on temperature and rainfall. If you have a warm, wet area that's in the edge of a continent with an ocean influence, you might have a tropical rainforest. But if you have a warm, wet area in the middle of a continent, you might have a wet prairie. It's a bit of an influence from where you're at on the continent besides the temperature and the rainfall. When you take that overall climate, now you're looking at your own garden. You know that, okay, I'm in an area that doesn't have a long winter or does have a long winter and, and has a lot of ice and snow. You look at that as the overall climate. But on your own landscape, the front of the house may be facing towards the west or the south and have a lot more heat than the north side. And so the plants that are in the sunny area where there's reflected heat off the building might be a few hardiness zones warmer than the back shady north side facing landscape. Need different plants that are capable of surviving the heat in the summertime and don't need the cold for dormancy in the wintertime. 
Whereas on the north side of the house, those plants are in the shade and they're in the cool areas. And so can grow plants that are acquiring colder temperatures for the wintertime that need a dormancy time that is longer. Depending on which way the house is facing, you've got microclimates, we call them, that are different. If you put in a fence that blocks the wind and now traps some heat, that's going to change the microclimate for the area. Depending on where the neighbor's house is and where your house is, where the trees are, where the fences are, those things are all going to influence the microclimates for your landscape. That influences which plants you can grow. What about soil conditions? How does that affect your garden? And can they be different from one side of the house to the other? Oh, absolutely. The vast majority of plants are growing in the soil and they're not moving. One of the definitions of a plant versus an animal is the plants are stuck there in that soil. They're using that soil as an anchor. If it's a shallow soil and you're putting in a big tree, that might be a problem and it'll blow over in the future. If you're putting in a plant that needs wet soil, a damp soil, shoreline kind of condition, but you're putting it on the sunny slope that all the water drains off quickly and dries out too fast, that can be a problem. The nutrients that are in the soil make a big difference, and the amount of organic matter in the soil makes a big difference. Each type of soil grows different kinds of plants. You have a dry desert soil that's going to grow cactus that's not going to grow water garden shoreline plants. The main differences between those are going to be the pore space and the water holding capacity. A good loamy garden soil for, say, vegetables would be a soil that's pretty much 50-50 of solid material and pore space. Pore space is divided in half, and half of it's air and half of it's water holding. If you imagine a sponge that you dip into a bucket of water and you pull it out, the large pores in the sponge drain the water out and the small pores retain the water. So that sponge would be, say, 50-50 with a lot of air space and a lot of water at the same time. That's what a good loamy garden soil is. Cactus would require a soil that is maybe 80% pore space and just you know, a few percentage being minerals and not very much organic matter. Whereas like a shoreline plant would want the pore spaces filled with water and not have very much air in there. Whatever type of plant you want to grow, say you fell in love with lilacs as a kid, now you want to have that in your landscape, then you have to look at your soil types and see if the soil is proper for growing a lilac. Azaleas and rhododendrons and some of the hydrangeas require a more acidic soil so that they can grow a better root system. If the soil is too high of a pH, their root system won't grow very well. You need to have a good idea of what kind of soil it is. If you're in a subdivision that's got a lot of clay on the base and just a couple inches of topsoil on top, you're going to have a hard time growing a lot of plants because they're not going to have enough soil, going to have enough water holding capacity in that small thin sponge that's sitting on top of the clay. If you have a choice, if you can get six or eight inches thick of layer of topsoil, that will help a lot. It again, it depends on the climate. If you're in Arizona, then you know having a six or eight inch layer of topsoil is probably not what you're going to have, and you're not going to be growing native plants in that. So you need to take into account the climate you're in as well. I know in our area, we have a lot of rolling hills, and we have a lot of situations where we have cut and fill. Do you ever run into those situations? Well, I'm a flatlander (laughs) in Illinois. Our problem is more getting water to drain out of the soil because we have such large areas that are flat. You can go for miles and miles and miles of flat land, and the water doesn't drain anywhere because it's all flat. It doesn't have any place to drain. 
the soil that forms on a hillside is different at the top than at the bottom because smaller organic matter particles will wash into the soil and wash off the soil. The bottom of a slope or the flat area at the end of a slope is going to have more organic matter. Top of the hill is going to have more rocky soil, more gravelly soil because it doesn't drain away as fast and you don't get those washing down the hill. The slope of the, uh, has an effect. The angle of the slope towards the sun has an effect as to whether it dries out faster. If it's north facing, it doesn't dry out as fast. Over time, the plants that are growing on the top of the hill, the middle of the hill, and the bottom of the hill, they influence the soil because their root systems often have organic matter left behind. Different plants that grow on those slopes are also going to influence the type of soil. So you have the slope angle, the minerals that were there to begin with, and then the organic matter that's left behind by the plants, all influencing the type of soil. As you make a cut and fill, you're reversing some of those things. You're taking off the top of the hill and putting it in the bottom of the hill. Now you have a whole different situation. So doing a soil test to find out which soil you've got. The front yard may be at the top of the hill and the backyard was uh, filled. You've got a whole different situation back there. What I run into the most in those situations, a client will say, well, why is that same plant growing really well over here and that plant over there, same plant, it's not growing well? Well, it could be a various amount of things, but often I observe that plant that's not growing as rapidly or as healthy is typically in cut soil, whereas the other's in fill. So I would think that has to do a lot with the soil compaction too. Yeah, and unfortunately, very few of us are Superman, where we can see through the soil and see what's underneath there. The fill soil, it can be all kinds of construction debris, and it's not even necessarily visible construction debris like 2x4s or plaster, washed out paint bucket or drywall bucket, left a whole bunch of chemicals in there that are not a big solid lump, but they're influencing the soil chemistry. At what point do you start thinking about maintenance on your garden or landscape? Right at the beginning, if I can. For the new person that doesn't know anything about plants, they don't even know that they're supposed to be thinking about maintenance, how they're going to take care of the plants, whether they're going to water them or prune them or fertilize them or whatever. They just don't know what's going to happen. The plant person that knows some things about plants know that they've got to do some of that, but they a lot of times don't have an idea of how much work it's going to be or what the cost is going to be to do that work. That's something that really needs to be discussed pretty much at the beginning. It was you doing the analysis phase of figuring out what the landscape is going to be, how much work it's going to be to maintain it is a big thing that needs to be looked at. So you're wanting to think, will this plant overgrow this location or will it stay in bounds? When you start thinking about the plant choices, how would those affect your maintenance? They really affect it a lot. So many people want to buy a big plant and put it in a small space. This is especially true on model homes where they take a large plant and a baby of a large plant and they stick it into the landscape and because it looks good right now. So as people go shopping, say, I can afford that $20 plant, but it's a plant that wants to grow three times bigger than what the space would allow. And then they try to chop it back down because it's covering the windows. I've seen so many houses where the, the front windows are completely covered up because of so many plants growing in front of it because they weren't maintained. They were too big of a plant. When it's all done like that, the only house plants you can grow are mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're designing a garden, do you need to think about themes and styles of that garden or is that really important? I think so. The style of the house has a big influence on the style of the landscape to make them fit together as a whole. You're going to have a style no matter what you do. Style could be, I saw this pretty plant at the grocery store for $5 and I suck it in the corner and now it's turned yellow. 
that's my style because I just buy things random and I just stick them in. If you really want to have a landscape that fits with the house, you start with the house style, whether it's a formal or an informal look. When you look at the front door, are there the same number of windows on both sides of the door across the front of the house? Is the building materials a formal brick or are they less formal like flagstones or fieldstones? You start with the architecture of the house, then start looking at the landscape. To me, that style is kind of towards the end of the design process. I start with get a plat of survey, maybe make 10 copies, or if I can get some tracing paper to cover it up, walk around the landscape and note where anything that's not on the, the plat of survey, or maybe the windows aren't on there, the faucets aren't on there, the dryer vent isn't there, any utilities that are coming in, anything that I can put on there, I put that on there and then sit down with the people that are looking for me to help them with the landscape. Just get a list of everything that wife wants to have. Is she a beekeeper? Does she want to have sheep so she can have yarn or something? What is the, the thing that she wants? You know, does she want a, a swing set for the kids? Does she want a barbecue area? Does the husband want an area to store the boat and needs a shed for the lawnmower? Basketball courts for the kids or swing set or sandbox? Just get all those things and then start putting overlays and saying, okay, here's the bad view. And so we're going to put a fence there. Or we're going to put a tree there. How are we going to block that view? How are we going to have privacy for the patio? Start just making up areas together and seeing if they fit. Does the dog run area where all the dog droppings are going to be, does that have to go near the patio? Because in the wintertime, the dog has to go out and you can't walk it out to the back part of the property. That's a conflict. Does the vegetable garden go next to the, the sunny spot in the yard and that's the only spot where the kids can play? How do you handle all those conflicts? And then after the conflicts are figured out, then we start looking at the shapes and say, okay, square patio matches this part of the house or a round patio matches this part of the house. And then we start working on our themes, our design styles from all those other pieces being put together. I don't start with the styles first. A lot of people don't have any idea what they want. can design a rose garden or a Japanese garden or a perennial garden or whatever it is. But if that doesn't match what the people need, then it doesn't work. Instead of imposing my ideas on top of theirs, I try to find out as much as I can about their landscape and all that first and analysis there, and then get all the needs next, and then start matching up. If you've got the climate and the microclimate things worked out and the drainage worked out, then all those other things all start fitting together. You can't put the koi pond in the back part of the property where the neighbor's water is going to flood it every time it rains. You've got things that are limiting you're forced not to do things in certain areas. You just work together, try to get all those parts together, and then work on the theme at the end. We've already touched on the sun and shade and how it affects the garden, but could we develop how those shade patterns and sunlight can really determine whether you're going to have a successful garden or not? Yeah, if it's an old established neighborhood where there's existing trees, that'll produce a lot of shade. And that is a big difference than a brand new subdivision where there's nothing there and you're starting from scratch. And we're going to spend time or money. Plants are going to grow and especially trees are going to influence their environment. If you're planting a tree and you think, oh, look at this, this shade perennial is supposed to grow under trees and you put it there, it probably won't last because there's too much sun because it's a brand new small tree. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, that's going to be the only plant that grows there because there's so much shade that nothing else will work. We start out a lot of times all sunny plants 
except for the where the building is going to shade it. Then slowly as time progresses, we start shifting out the sunny plants for the shady plants and work our way into a shade perennial garden or whatever that wasn't there to begin with. It couldn't have grown there because there was way too much sun at the beginning. I've never liked people telling me what I have to do in my garden, but even though I don't like that, are there entities that I should check with before starting my garden project? Oh, definitely. The more urban your landscape, the more rules there's going to be enforced on top of it. If you're building a house out in the country, you can do a lot more than if you're in a subdivision or an urban area, especially if there's a homeowner's association involved. A lot of these things are designed because people take advantage of other people. I live in a neighborhood where I don't know what this man has over the local jurisdictions, but he's got about 20 cars in his yard. Nobody else is allowed to do that, but this guy has been doing this for more than a decade. There's something wrong because a neighbor did that and they got a ticket with one car. So how did this guy have 20 cars? People try to take advantage. People don't know how to do things correctly. Somebody puts an irrigation system in but doesn't put in a backflow device because it's costly then that potentially could cause trouble and contaminate the water system of you and your neighbors. If you're putting in an irrigation system in, there's probably a rule that you have to have the backflow device, and then probably another rule that says it has to be inspected every year or two. You have to be able to produce that uh, receipt that shows that it was inspected. The more urban you are, the more rules you're going to have. Sometimes that's frustrating to deal with, especially if I want to put up a taller fence and block the neighbor's view and there's a six-foot rule instead of an eight-foot rule or something. It's hard to deal with sometimes, especially in, in the front yards. Backyards, you can get away with things a little more. I like to put in edible plants. And so if I have some tomatoes for the decorative thing in my front yard, that's kind of fun for me because yellows and pinks and things are nice, but it's a vegetable and you're not allowed to have vegetables in the front yards. It becomes a bigger problem, especially for people who want to do butterfly gardens or native plants where they don't want to have any lawn in the front. They want to have all perennials. Perennials are beautiful for two weeks at a time for the most part. Very few perennials are pretty for 50 weeks or even for three months. They start looking like weeds to the neighbors, and that can be a problem. Weeds do look bad, and you have to be able to tell the difference and be able to explain why you're putting in these plants. I'd also like to add in that you should call 811, and that's for your utility locates, so that you won't damage your utilities there at your house or even damage yourself. It'll be a lot safer for you and your neighbors. Call before you dig, 811. What is your insights on whether to hire a professional or try to go the DIY route? If you have any doubts, then hire somebody. Even if it's just to hire somebody for the design work because you want to do the work yourself. If you don't know anything about plants, the more professional person you can get, the better. If you know something about plants, then maybe just the design work. I just believe in hiring people to do things. I can do plumbing stuff because I've done a lot of outside irrigation stuff, but there's no way I'm going to put the plumbing in my bathroom. So I'm going to hire a professional and have it done right. I'm not going to have leaks and stuff. We think it's easy to plant plants because all it takes is digging a hole. There is more to it, and it is a lot of work. It's not necessarily complicated work, but if you haven't done it, then it becomes complicated, and it takes a lot longer than you think. About 20 plants, I can have them planted in the next two hours, and I can enjoy the rest of the day. And two weekends later, you're still trying to get a hole dug because there's a giant rock in the ground, and you can't get it out. 
professional would have the tools to be able to do that. Can do the compromise and have some of it done, have them put in the big trees. I think it's really great to have professionals put in hardscapes because I've seen so many patios and retaining walls that are falling apart because people thought they could do it and they don't do a very good job. Sod is easy to install, but it really requires a good, smooth base. And I've seen a lot of people kind of skimp on that. And so they don't have a, you know, this, a good success on putting sod in. Anything here you can have the professional do it. Anything you can afford to have them do, I suggest having them do it. Are there certain kind of plants that you would suggest that are included in a garden or maybe to exclude in a garden? I think the more variety you have, the better. So many landscapes have only one or two types of plants. The more families of plants you have, the more diverse it is, the more you'll support butterflies and birds and other wildlife in your landscape. If you walk out into the woods and you go to your local forest preserve and go to a prairie area or go to a forested area, you'll see a lot of different kinds of plants. You won't see large areas of the same thing. We do that with cornfields and lawns. The natural world has a lot more variety. You'll support a lot more animals, butterflies and birds and other insects, the more diversity you have. Then it'll benefit you as well because if there is an insect or a disease that comes along, the vast majority of insects and diseases prefer one genus of plants or one family of plants. If you have very few plants in your yard and then they're all in the same family, then you're going to have a bigger problem. The rose family is huge, and there's a lot of different kinds of plants in the rose family. Obviously, it's called rose family, so there's roses, but then apple trees and pear trees and spireas and photinia, there's a whole bunch of different plants that are in that same family. So if one of them is going to get sick, then a lot of them are going to get sick. There are plant diseases that go from one group of plants to another. In the rose family, there are rusts and scab diseases that switch back and forth, and some of the rusts go to the juniper family. I actually saw a landscape that was entirely made of juniper family plants and rose family plants. There was a lot of diversity, a lot of different kinds, but they were all in those two families. They really had a tough time in the maintenance because they constantly had to spray to try to prevent their plants from dying. The more diversity you have, the better off your landscape will be. Because your landscape is part of the overall ecosystem, it's not just at your boundaries or your property lines, you'll benefit a lot more animals and birds and bees if you have a wider variety of plants. Well, what factors will go into determining whether I really need to invest in an irrigation system? The country is kind of divided into three parts. There is the dry part, the wet part, and the kind of the in-between part. Some years it's dry, some years it's wet. I'm in an area that we consistently have summers that plenty of rain and we rarely have to do extra watering. This year we had a May and June that had virtually no rain and that's very unusual. Usually it's July and August if we're going to have any time that's going to be a dry period. This year it was a really odd time of year. The vast majority of the years we don't have to do very much watering of plants to keep them growing. We're in an area that an irrigation system does make it easier and it's more convenient. My mom has one in her landscape. It's harder for her to get out and water. She just turned 90. It's great to have that irrigation system. Drier areas of the country need the irrigation system, and they use the rain as the supplement, whereas I'm using the irrigation as the supplement. And you've got areas where you, know, you might have two or three years of drought in a row, so an irrigation system is going to keep those plants alive. In other years, you might go and not have to have the irrigation system turned on. 
first you look at your climate and then look at the maintenance, how much work you want to do. That's a, a step that really should be installed before the rest of the landscape goes in because you're going to do so much digging and tearing things up. That's something that needs to be talked about in the design process. A lot of the things we talk about in the design process and the needs and wants that we have at the beginning are influencing the maintenance that we're going to do at the end. Irrigation system really definitely needs to be talked about at the beginning. Now, something I'm really amazed is that your persistence for 32 years in writing a weekly newspaper article. Could you tell us about that? <laughs> well, I'm not sure persistence is the right word. I think, you know, lunatic might be a better <laughs> word for it. I actually started just a weekly column in the local newspapers. It was easy to do because people would ask me questions all the time. I had a retail garden center for a while, and so I was constantly getting questions. And it was a local thing, and so I could write specifically. We had a thunderstorm last week that knocked down some trees, and here's how you do the maintenance on those now. It was really nice to do local stuff. The newspapers were joined and sold, and all kinds of things happened. C.Z. Guest, it was a lady who did a national column. She retired, and they were looking for somebody, and I was already doing work for some other newspapers. So they said, hey, how would you like to do the rest? And I said, okay, not really thinking too strongly about it. But I did worry that spring is coming in Houston a long time before it's coming in Minneapolis. So how do you write something about spring? It does take some effort to try to do that. And sometimes I've done a north column and a south column so the newspapers can pick and choose which one they're going to use. The columns have become more general. I still get a lot of questions. I've had one, one week where I had a question on bamboo and a question on lilac. The bamboo one came from New Jersey, and the lilac one came from California, which completely backwards to what I would have expected. It is fun for me. I do like learning. As a kid, I was in Boy Scouts, and I was a camp counselor for a couple summers. Took all of the merit badge class things to teach of things that nobody else wanted, all the oddball things, because that helped me learn about that subject as well. I've always liked learning new things, and I like getting all the questions and researching and finding out what's going on in different parts of the country. So I've had a lot of fun doing it too. We are also doing a YouTube channel that's just got some amazing episodes. So you do a very good job with that. I actually have been a photographer for a long time. Did some videography for a company that installed water gardens. When I got started into the videography part, it was a lot of fun. So I just started collecting videos and photographs. I have thousands of pictures in my computer and probably thousands of videos as well. When you do a video for YouTube, a lot of times you have the, the voiceover part where you're talking. Then you have the, what we call B-roll material where you're having to show the stuff up close and the insect or whatever it is you're talking about. I collected a lot of that B-roll stuff without having the narration parts done and not sure what I was going to do with a lot of that stuff. I was a University of Illinois Extension horticulture agent teaching the Master Gardener program, the Master Naturalist program. I left there and wrote a Green Review Gardening book that starts out with what is a plant and goes all the way through. For the people who own a home that don't have a landscape background, don't have any horticulture class background, this book gives you all the information you need how to do that. People learn by reading, but a lot of people also learn by watching, and YouTube is a big thing for a lot of people. As soon as you say, how do you do pruning? Well, let's go to YouTube and let's look it up. The YouTube channel was created so that I could have the book information is the book and then have the YouTube information doing the videos, also doing the same training. There are playlists on the YouTube channel for every chapter. You can read information and then you can see the information in the YouTube channel. They both fit together pretty well. 
So what is the YouTube channel that we need to dial into? On YouTube, it's the at sign and then a greener view. If you just do a search for greener view, you might find other YouTube channels from other parts of the country or other parts of the world. The A Greener View part is what you're looking for for mine. The, the book that you authored, what's the name of it? It's Greener View Gardening. Tell us about it. About 400 pages long, so it's kind of a textbook size. It's eight and a half by 11. It's got over a thousand pictures in it that I took over the years when I was trying to gather information. It starts out, what is a plant? And it has a chapter on plants and you know, how they're named. There's a chapter on plants in the environment, and we talk about the hardiness zones and how plants use water and sunlight. There's chapters on annuals, perennials, bulbs, house plants, trees and shrubs, maintenance, pest control, pruning, landscape design, which we've talked a lot about today, water gardening, gardening for wildlife, including bees and butterflies, and even what do you do if you have snakes and turtles and things in your yard. It's a pretty comprehensive book. And where would we find that book? The best place to go is greenerview.com. You can find information there for the newspaper column, the book, and the YouTube channel. You only have to remember the one website to get to all three places, greenerview.com. If you click on the book, there's a soft cover version and an electronic version, a PDF version. I can't do it as electronic book because the text flows without the pictures. Needed to have captions and lots of other information staying on the same page. It is a PDF version. If anybody wants the book, it is an expensive book because it is self-published. It's $79. If somebody wants the book that hears this podcast, let's do $30 off if you use the promo code podcast, one word podcast. We'll give you $30 off the soft cover book. We'll include that link on the episode page too. Let's turn the conversation a little bit here. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? As I drive down the street, I see that people haven't done the maintenance. They just don't know. I'm sure if they would drive past my house, they look at the and go, look at what he did to the siding or the roof or the concrete or the paint job. Whatever their expertise is, they don't like what I've done. I see so many people that really put in no effort to their landscape. Just put in some flowers, even just tulip bulbs. Here we are in the fall. Add a bunch of bulbs, and then next spring you'll be so surprised on how beautiful your landscape is with just the bright colors first thing in the spring. Add some annuals. Put in a hanging basket. Put in you know, a flower pot. If you only have a small space or no time, put in annuals. The annuals are flowers that live for one summer and die, and there's nothing you can do about it. There very few of them are going to survive later by taking them indoors you can have a very pretty landscape because most of them flower continuously. Flowers that are trying to produce seeds, and maybe you have to you know, pinch them off every once in a while, they, they continue flowering all the time. Perennials tend to flower for a couple of weeks and then go dormant so that they can put enough energy into the root system or the bulb or the stems or whatever it is that they're using to survive the winter. So they need that dormant period to survive. To do that, they have to use their leaves to produce enough carbohydrates to be able to survive. They don't put it much into flowers after a first few couple, you know, few weeks. Annuals are flowering all the time because they have that one shot. They don't have to worry about going dormant. They're not trying to store any energy. They just want to produce as many flowers as possible to create as many seeds as possible. A lot of the newer varieties are hybrids that can't produce seeds. Plant doesn't know that and it produces lots and lots of flowers. 
put in a couple of flower pots, just water them occasionally and keep them going. The whole neighborhood would be a lot prettier if you did that. What garden myth would you like to smash today? There are so many. Stop watching YouTube videos. <laughs> Except for my channel. No, it's not so much YouTube videos. It's the Facebook videos. There's so many people trying to put banana peels and coffee grounds and eggshells and copper wires and all kinds of odd things in the soil that don't work. The, the plants don't use eggshells or banana peels. Those things have to be decayed and broken down by snails and bugs and bacteria and fungi and all kinds of things to get to the point where they're just a chemical that can be dissolved in water to get into the root system of the plant. Those things aren't going to benefit your plants at all. Stop putting the black, ugly banana peels on your flowering pots or in your garden. Put them in a compost pile where they can decay properly. Then you can put the compost into those flower pots or into your garden, and you'll have much healthier plants that way. What's your earliest garden memory? My mom had a set of windowsills that she got involved with African violets. She had too many to sit on the windowsills. So my dad installed glass shelves up the height of the windows on little wooden bars on each side of the window. My mom was able to stack African violets all the way up the windows. Nice. Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession or landscape profession? There wasn't anything else I wanted to do. In Scouts, I was involved in everything. I liked wildlife. I liked plants. I, I just enjoyed all the outdoor kinds of things. That led me into getting an associate degree in science. A bunch of my friends, we were bird watchers, and we went together to the four-year college and got degrees in ornithology. I took all my extra classes, all the electives in the horticulture department. Turns out that to get a double major, you ended up having to have all of the requirements to get a second bachelor's degree. I got a bachelor's degree in zoology, and so then I got a bachelor's degree in plant and soil science. During all that process, I found that the landscape architecture profession was actually a lot different than I expected it to be. I expected landscape architecture to be the horticulture people that planted plants around buildings. Landscape architecture is a much wider profession and actually is the kind of the combination profession that the engineers come to, the architects come to, the horticulture people come to, the ecologists come to, and the landscape architect does the combination of things. So I took the landscape architecture master's degree and was able to design whole subdivisions. I can start from the ground up. 640 acres a square mile and say, okay, here's where the water comes in. Here's where the water goes out. Here's how we can build an entire subdivision that fits in with this landscape that's existing, whether the hills are there or all the macro climate kinds of things, then fit what the people need into that ecosystem and make it work. Ended up with a design firm in Texas and did work at several different cities in Texas and worked in Baylor University and worked on some landscape designs for California. Moved home because uh, there was a job opportunity really close to my house up in Illinois. That firm did both landscape architecture and design build, and so we could start with a, an entire subdivision design and work our way down through all the way to the plants and the sod and grass seed way at the end. Worked in garden centers in Texas and Illinois. I was a registered landscape architect in Illinois and Texas. Illinois certified nurseryman, internationally certified arborist, irrigation, something or another. I have lots of wallpapers somewhere in a, sitting in a closet shelf somewhere. 
you know, God has led me through a whole bunch of different things over the years that have all kind of matched and fit. Working for the University of Illinois, teaching master gardeners, master naturalists, and now I work on a 30-acre estate, and that's helped me to be able to have the time and the opportunity to take the pictures and videos to make the book and the YouTube channel. That all got me to GardenCom, which got me to you. So it all fits. That's the full route. (laughs) Tell us a funny garden story. I did collect some praying mantis egg cases, and they ended up hatching in my office. And so I had little praying mantises all over the shelves, all over the books, all over the place. So I had to collect them. They can jump. It's amazing how far they can jump before they really fly very well. And so it took a while to collect them all and move them out into the landscape. (laughs) Uh, What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? I'm always learning something new. I just found a pair of maple leaves that were turning color on a red maple. Nothing else in the tree was turning. I always look for what we call flagging, where there's an individual branch that's doing something odd compared to the rest of the plant. When there's fall color a month early, that's usually a signal that that plant is under some sort of stress. And red maples in my area that have a branch or two flagging early a lot of times have scale insects and they're sucking all the juice out of the branch. The branch will be dead by spring. I always look to see where I can spray horticulture oil on those maples this time of year. Today I found a, a red maple branch that had just like the last six leaves were turning. As I pulled on the branch, two of the leaves popped off into my hand, and there wasn't any scale insects, but I was really shocked where the two leaves have been growing so close together that one leaf was laying on the other. They were both red on the areas exposed to the sun. If you move the other leaf off, the bottom leaf was completely green in the shape of where the other leaf had been resting on it. So I just found that fascinating, and I'm going to probably now, (laughs) I'm going to work on creating a Grandpa Jeff video for my grandkids out and I'm going to tape some symbols and then maybe my name and stuff, maybe their names, onto some leaves in with opaque paper and see if I can get the leaves to spell out their names on the, on the leaf. Got to do some little research playing around figuring out where the, the sugars are developing and the pigments are developing in the sunlight, but not in the shade. So that'll be a fun thing to investigate a little more. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that video. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have a lot of weeds. too many weeds i have a lot of fruit i have strawberries raspberries blackberries kiwi grapes apples peaches pears blueberries lots of different kinds of fruits i like multi-purpose plants the botanical difference between an apple and a crab apple is apples are two inches in diameter and bigger and crab apples are smaller than that otherwise everything about them is the same so if you can grow a crab apple you can grow a red delicious or a gold rush or any of the other fun apples that you might want to have it may take a little bit of extra work in keeping the animals from eating them because you don't really care if they eat crab apples but you do care if they eat apples you can grow them just as easily so any place you can grow a Bradford pear, you can grow kefir pear or a Bartlett pear. A lot of horticulture plants that we have, we can be turning those into fruit trees. I really wish people would do more fruit. What did you learn from your garden last year that you applied this year? To get rid of the mammals earlier. <laughs> Squirrels, raccoons, and possums really like my peaches. So do chipmunks. There are no good mammals in the landscape or in the garden especially a fruit garden or a vegetable garden, a way that I remove them from my landscape safely and humanely and put them someplace else. I have little security cameras sitting on the ground facing into the orchard and I can see raccoons and possums walk by and I know that they're still there. 
Even if I've caught a whole bunch of them, there's always more. But if I can reduce the population early, then I'll have more fruit for me. What are your future plans for your garden? Right now, I'm in a, it's a holding pattern. I have too many plants. I have too many plants that need to go indoors. I have too many plants that go outdoors. I do want to redo the front landscape. The front porch has a U hedge that I used to be able to jump over when I was a kid because it was only three feet tall. Now it's about six feet tall, and it's actually about 15 feet wide. It's really, really wide. Eventually, that needs to come out better landscape plants put in. It does make a nice privacy thing for sitting on the porch, but I have other plants I would like to plant. I'm always getting new plants, so I take that hedge out and put in new plants. What plant are you in love with this week? Colocasia gigantea. It's an elephant ear plant. It's a bulb. It has leaves that are four or five feet long and four or five feet wide. Colocasia gigantea and Thailand giant is one of the varieties I recently saw. It's a huge plant. I really would like to kind of surprise somebody and put one in their landscape and just have it grow like crazy because it would be shocking to have somebody find this plant in their yard. Jeff, tell us how people may connect with you. The easiest way is to go to greenreview.com and use the email address of info at greenreview.com. This has been episode 130, Cultivating the Perfect Garden with Effective Go Planning with Jeff Rugg. Thank you, Jeff. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.